Welcome to Insult My Intelligence. The time is 100 seconds to midnight. Not literally, although I guess it could be, depending on where you're listening to this. However, according to a distinguished board of experts in the fields of nuclear technology and climate science, that is the time set on the doomsday clock for the year 2022. That is how close we are, figuratively speaking, to the end of the world as we know it. But how was it arrived at, and how should we interpret that? What does it mean for us to be 100 seconds from midnight? Spoiler alert, it's not good. Our guest today is Rachel Bronson, the CEO of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which makes her the person in charge of the board that sets the doomsday clock. I started by asking how the idea for the clock first came about. This is the 75th anniversary of the Doomsday Clock, and it first appeared on the first cover of our magazine in June of 1947. So the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists was created um, right after the droppings of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. And uh, the founders of my organization put out a black and white six-page bulletin, literally, um, by atomic scientists, and for two years it was uh, it was in high demand, and they turned it into a magazine in 1947. Uh, that was the vehicle for communication, but like Time Magazine and Life Magazine, they needed a cover, and the first cover of the first magazine was what's become known as the Doomsday Clock. And originally, this was it was an illustration created by an illustrator, and it was set. At seven minutes to midnight, I gather for largely illustrative reasons. Yeah, it, she she in in interviews. So it was created by an artist, Martil Langsdorf. She was an oil landscape painter here in Chicago, where the Bulletin is headquartered. Um, and but but and this is very important to the story. She was married to a Manhattan Project scientist uh, who was involved in both the founding of the Bulletin, but. The, the, the creation of the atomic bomb. And he and his friends were desperately worried about this new technology and how it might be used and how it was going to be, how it was going to alter uh, the future of humanity if we didn't figure out how to contain it. And he and his colleagues actually foresaw the arms races that were to come. He was very, very worried. And he, he deeply believed that the public needed to be engaged and uh, understand what what we now had at our fingertips and the need to uh, control it and management manage it and demand good policies around it. And that's all really important because as she starts thinking about the image, she comes up with the uh, the symbols of uranium and she's thinking about later, you know, and and other things that would would connect in people's minds. But she's an artist, and she understood the um, the urgency that her husband and his his colleagues felt and she understood these were her dinner time conversations. And so she creates it and sets it at seven minutes to midnight. And she says uh, in interviews, you know, because it looked right in my eye, you know, the design aspect of it, but it wasn't whimsical. That design aspect of it suggests a number of things. It suggests urgency. Seven minutes to midnight is very close. It picks up on our sense of countdowns to rocket launches and things like that that we intuitively get, but also this notion that if we don't do something, time will keep ticking, 
But I think it also provides an agency and kind of an unspoken image that we can turn back those hands of the clock, that the urgency is uh, urgency is required, but that we do have an ability to do something with it. And that's why, I mean, to me, it's this power of art and science coming together um, in a very, very powerful way that echoes through the decades now. And it was it's an immediately, as you say, readable illustration of how urgent things are but it wasn't created with a with a view to resetting it every so often that happened just a couple of years later didn't it yeah and i think also just to your point on that what's also so powerful about it is that it's in any language like you have to be able to read a clock right so in 2022 you know there's a notion of it's it's an analog clock it's not even digital so that's true but you don't have to read a particular language to get the symbolism of it. And I think that is all it's universal in that sense and very, very powerful. Um, and so your, oh, so your, your question of it wasn't meant to, to necessarily be moved. That's what's so kind of remarkable about this, this, this symbol and this metaphor, which is, uh, so she, she creates this clock it's set at seven minutes to midnight and it becomes the cover the only thing that changes, these are scientists at the university. They have very little money to put behind this and they needed something cheap. And so they have this design and they just changed to one color each issue. Um, two years later, though, in 1949, the Soviets test uh, their uh, atomic bomb. And the editor of the magazine changes the time. He moves it closer to midnight. And then in 1953, we, the U.S. and the Soviets at this point tested hydrogen bombs, and he moves it closer again. And suddenly, this static image becomes dynamic. And that's something that wasn't necessarily intended, but it becomes quite interesting. And then over time, he, he and it's just the editor at this point, just the editor, he is moving it towards and away from midnight, depending on current events. And it's the beginning of the setting of the doomsday clock that has, be that has now become this kind of measure through history of the Cold War nuclear weapons and now existential threats more broadly. So at the beginning, it was the editor just taking a decision as to where this threat level should be placed. How, how does it work now? Yeah, so it was just the editor, absolutely. Um, the the We had something called, and we still have it, called the Board of Sponsors, which was created by Albert Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer was the first chair. So the editor is engaging with these kinds of leaders. So he's making the decision. Um, but the, this is the milieu that he's moving in and, you know, how he's understanding the, the politics and the science of the time. So now he passes away in the mid-70s, and then coming out of that, the board then sets the doomsday clock. And now it is the science and security board of the doomsday clock, which is the direct lineage back to that original board, sets the doomsday clock. So at the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, we have a governing board, a science and security board, and this board of sponsors that I mentioned. But the science and security board sets the doomsday clock. And they are kind of leading experts in their fields. Um, they work in their spaces day in, day out, but they come together kind of bringing their, their thinking, their research, their engagements to the setting of the clock every year. 
According to the clock, we're 100 seconds from midnight, or the end of civilization. But obviously this is a figure open to interpretation. So what is the doomsday clock actually trying to measure? Obviously a lot of information and, and opinion goes into this, and, and a lot of discussion, presumably. Um, and it's very difficult to, to boil factors that go into global survival or not into a single number. Are there rules? Is this meant to reflect the overall threat, or is it just the change to the threat level year on year that it represents? Oh, that's a great question. So I think the most important thing to uh, for, for your listeners is this is very much a judgment. It is a judgment of experts who come together and make a decision about and about kind of the message they want to send. And so I will share the second part of that answer to your question. But I think it's really important that this is a judgment. And so it's they're mm-hmm. not feeding facts in and spitting out a time. They're coming together. Um, and it's meant to in, it's meant to both draw attention to these big complicated topics, but also to prompt a conversation. Did we get it right? What time do you think it should have been? Should it be closer? And and I'd be happy to to talk about uh, that as well. Um, so your question is a really good one. Like, what is it measuring? So each year when we set the time, I kind of frame the conversation, which is, is humanity safer or at greater risk this year compared to last year? And this year compared to the past 75 years we've been measuring it. Those are really two different questions, and it's a whole bunch of information. But that's what this number is supposed to represent. So why are those two questions so important? Because we do want it to be a how we do, not only how did we do this year, but what's the challenge, right? Did, were we able, were politicians able, was the public able to, to move this in important ways um, in terms of our willingness and ability to address existential threat? But we also look at it across the 75 years because that's the message that we're trying to send. Like we're, we are trying, we are aware that there are high points and low points, the end of the Cold War, where we move the clock all the way back to 17 minutes to midnight. Where do we sit compared to that? And the times when it's been the closest it's ever been at two minutes to midnight had been the closest or the explosion of hydrogen bombs. Like where where do we fit? And so we're very, very mindful that when we set the clock at 100 seconds to midnight this year, which is the third year in a row, we set it at 100 seconds to midnight, starting with 2020. We were very aware that this was the closest it had been since the end of the Cold War. And there's a lot of questions about that. People remember that Cold War and points where they really believed that they might not get off the plane that they were on because of nuclear tensions at the time. And so when we moved it to 100 seconds to midnight, we were very aware that we were saying it is closer, that you know, we are actually at greater risk than during the Cold War. And that was very contentious, and we can lay out why that is. But that's why I think it is important. That's both the year, but we're also aware that we're comparing the time to 75 years of this history, and we don't take that lightly. In 1991, I guess, was the year when it was furthest away from midnight, 17 minutes, which was so far. I mean, the graphic itself is only the upper left quadrant of a clock. So it was, you know, it's really only it's not a very optimistic presentation to begin with. 17 minutes had to sort of cheat it a little bit. And the the minute hand ducked under the illustration just a hair. 
was that that was meant to reflect the end of the Cold War and the signing of a big arms treaty. But um, were, was that now on reflection? Do we think that was maybe a little optimistic? I don't think so. I think it was a very optimistic time. And it was um, every uh, a lot of what the my predecessors had been writing about. Um, it was a moment where a lot was on the table for the first time you had um, not for the first time, this was like, there had been a, a, a stack of arms control agreements that had been signed that had moved it back and forward. But the real reduction, but commitment to reducing between the U.S. and the Soviets, taking them off hair trigger alert, removing whole classes of weapons from uh, the battlefield. This were These were big, extraordinary changes that did make humanity so much safer. You had dialogues beginning between the U.S. and and the Soviets, now Russians, two countries that still to this day control 90% of the world's nuclear arsenal. So those moves that we and they, uh, we, the United States, they, the, the Soviets, now Russians, made, did make humanity substantially safer. Now the clock has ticked forward again because we haven't maintained those commitments and we haven't continued to reduce um, uh, the number of warheads. The technology is evolving. We talk about it in our statement. The technologies are evolving. All of this, but but the the actual decisions and the global architecture that was possible at that time, I think it was it was a, a very useful, optimistic call to what was possible. And I was glad that I am glad that they moved it back because it's, you know, we're not bound by the art, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And that if it deserves to go further back, we will move it further, further back. And and so I do think that was a really um, strong message. And I, I, you know, and it's also people often ask like, what makes you at all optimistic? It's the fact that it, the clock has moved forward and back. We do know how to do this. We are capable of doing this. We can do it again. Human ingenuity, as well as political commitment, can make us safer. We're, we're just not demonstrating that commitment at the moment. In the beginning, the clock was only updated whenever it changed. But since 2015, we've had a full statement uh, every year uh, even if the clock stays the same, uh, is that r- meant to reflect a sort of extra urgency, or or a fact that we're so close to midnight now that we need, you know, that we need to even staying the same as news? Yeah, you know, I think there there it's uh, it, we get a lot of pressure to like issue the time more frequently, but once a year is actually quite frequent, and and we don't this shouldn't be news cycle. We don't believe this is kind of a reflection on where we've been and and a roadmap for where we should go. The reason that we are issuing it every year is because it's important to take stock of where we are. And the just saying, well, it's the same, you know, you could see two years ago where it was, it's the same, nothing has changed, does, I think, suggest a lack of urgency around these issues, to your point, that it is important that once a year, at least, we take stock of where we have been and where we're going. Um, on these key issues. And so that's why we do announce it every year, even when there isn't a change, because that is a message in and of itself. When we stay the same, it's that we're not doing better than we could. And at this moment, when we are so close to 100 seconds to midnight, it is important that 
we have these moments to talk about these big existential issues that are so difficult to talk about, right? Like everyone's trying to get their kids to school, get dinner on the table, pay their rents, whatever, you know, that, that kind of consumes you during the day. These are big, hard topics to think about how we're going to tackle climate change. What do we think about the information um, uh, ecosystem that we're living on and, it contrib- and how it contributes to the solving of nuclear risk? What do we, how do we understand COVID in terms of what it means for what's coming? These are really big, hard topics that, that it's a lot to ask people to stop in their day and think about it. I think the clock allows us to do that. And at least once a year, we should be thinking about it. In in 2020, it was pushed to its closest position ever, 100 seconds midnight. And I feel like switching from minutes to seconds, it's a bit like when your sat-nav goes down to tenths of a mile. It means you're approaching your destination rapidly. Um, And it's remained there ever since. What was the thinking uh, over the last two years, and especially this year, this only a couple of weeks ago, in leaving it where it was? Yeah, there was a lot of debate about that, right? About what is that, what is the message is saying and, you know, how do we assess our progress? And so what we, we try to, what we talk about in the report are some real bright spots and there were, you know, the, the things that could have moved us away from midnight. So we talk about the signing of the new START agreement, an arms control agreement between uh, the U- U.S. and Russians that had uh, was about to expire. It was the last remaining bilateral arms con- nuclear arms control agreement between the U.S. and the Russians, the last thread kind of holding them bilaterally together in any sort of monitoring and verification uh, regime. And uh, that looked to expire, but it was re-signed and engaged upon. The U.S. and the Russians started stabilization talks or uh, uh a strategic dialogue, excuse me, about about their nuclear forces. So it may be surprising to some people that there had been no conversations at a military to military level about managing these threats. It was very hard to any sort of political dialogue. Those conversations have started up again. We did see world leaders coming together in Glasgow to to take seriously climate change and begin to to kind of restart the the international dialogue around it. So we saw vaccines coming online. So we kind of list uh, out a a series of things that were very positive. But that being said, there are things that are very concerning to us, right? The fact that um, we don't see a new a uh, new set of arms control agreements. The fact that it, the nuclear environment is so fragile, and we're experiencing that right now with the U.S.-Russia standoff in the Ukraine. How fragile this is! I mean, nuclear weapons are being discussed in a political context in our news stories about the mo- potential movement of tactical nuclear weapons. I mean, this is so unbelievable, right? But this is really true where we are. The North Koreans are testing their um, missiles and to draw our attention in the, you know, Iran, the U.S.-Iran issue around the Iranian program. Nuclear weapons are very much on the table and every major nuclear country is investing in their nuclear arsenals and their their nuclear postures suggest that they're more and not less usable. So in the nuclear space, with the kind of momentum towards investment and potential use, 
we absolutely didn't feel like we could move it away from midnight. And on the climate, uh, in the climate area, the climate scientists who had been so excited about Plasco and really saw a potential for major new contributions and commitments were sorely disappointed by what came out of it. So it was great that they had that meeting and were always supportive and encouraging it. But the lack of commitments, the lack of, of new commitments over time, and anything to the level of the urgency with which they faced, they did not feel that they could move it um, back. The other thing that they talk about in terms of light, like the the kind of bright spots on the climate side is the youth movements and what we're seeing globally of kind of social movements that are beginning to influence political decisions. And we have called that out. We haven't yet seen that really playing out in terms of actions, but it is something we've called out in the past because it is a very positive, important development. So for those key reasons, we didn't feel like we could move it away from mid, uh, midnight, but we didn't move it towards because you know, this is, these are the kinds of issues that, that my science and security board comes and kind of grapples with about what all this means. You've more or less convinced me we should have moved it closer with all that. <laughs> it's pretty it's, close. Yeah, pretty <laughs> well, close. I agree. And I think that's where we, you know, it's, that's where we, when they looked at it, there are certainly, you know, people coming in to the, to the meeting trying to kind of make sense of it, but they really felt that this is what 100 seconds to midnight feels like. The doomsday clock was originally focused entirely on the threat of nuclear destruction. But over the last few decades, other existential threats have emerged, most notably climate change. I asked Rachel Bronson about the decision to factor in climate change to the setting of the clock, and if there are any other threats emerging that need to be considered. At the beginning, this was the, the clock was mainly meant to reflect the doom represented by uh, nuclear proliferation. In more recent times, obviously, uh, climate change has, has come as, as maybe an, an even more important factor. Um, and then much more recently, obviously, COVID and the threat of uh, the future of that pandemic and the threat of other pandemics. Um, and there's, so you've got now a sort of triumvirate of, of doom running, you know, that we're talking about. Are there, are there any up-and-comers that we don't yeah. know about? Yeah, I mean, so so we introduced climate change into the clock in 2007. Um, and it was really, it was a very controversial decision for my organization, one that we, we still confront, which is uh, these are two very different kinds of threats. They're very, they're, their time horizons are very different. Nuclear exchange can happen in, literally in minutes, and climate change is is a you know decadal century long these these are challenges that are going to get worse and worse over time um and so like how can we think about them uh, similarly and and that's fair um but what's really interesting is by 2009 the board had to answer the question is the doomsday clock about nuclear risk or is it about existential threat and up until really that point we didn't have to make a distinction because it was about there was only one technology that could you know, end humanity as we know it. And so you didn't have to ask that question. They were one in the same. But we had been reporting on climate change since the, the early 60s. We cover stories in 78 saying, is humanity changing the, is man changing the climate? I think it was. And you open it and we say yes, right? And so, so they kind of had to figure out what this clock was, what were they talking about? And in 2009, 2007, I think it was when they added climate into uh, the clock um, time, they answered this was about existential threat. So 
if it's about existential threat, then you have to say, well, what are the other, are there others? And we look at man technologies, right? So that's, there are other existential threats out there, asteroids and you know volcanoes. So we look at man-made threats. And the reason we do that is our belief. We created them, we can prevent them. And so you start saying, well, what else is out there, right? And so we, in our, in, in our magazine and on our website, we are looking at the advancement of technology, recognizing that every technology is dual use. It has benefits and risks. And to the extent to which we can manage those risks, we will enjoy the benefits, right? And so nuclear power, nuclear is the poster child for this, right? Like think about nuclear power. If we could manage the risks, we could enjoy the benefits in this carbon constrained environment in which we're living in, right? We need carbon free energy. Nuclear power presents that in a moment where we need it desperately at the same time society isn't convinced that it's safe. They're not convinced that they are protected against accidents, like whether it's in Fukushima, right, or Chernobyl. They're not convinced that terrorists can't compromise a power plant in certain countries and use it to create nuclear weapons. They don't trust. So we can't, we we don't know what to do with the waste, right? Burying it. People don't want it buried in their backyard. So it's this dual use technology that we can't access the benefits of because we haven't managed the risk. So now we for, fast forward up right to your question, like what's out there. So when we think about COVID, we're very clear about it. COVID is not, COVID is not an existential risk at the moment. We don't expect it to be. And we're very clear about that. But there are lessons to be learned from COVID, which are there's uh, labs around the world that are not sec- as secure as we need them to be. Um, so that we are likely to see man-made uh, diseases coming out of labs. We do know that humans are moving into, the built environment is moving into natural environments. We are likely to see naturally occurring pandemics. We are not prepared to deal with them. We had a moment where we had a global crisis and we didn't respond globally. And we see that continuously. We're still two years into it and we're not responding the way that we should. We don't have a WHO that's responding the way it needs to. We find there's an Omicron virus that comes out of South Africa. And what do we do? We bar travel from South Africa. Here, South Africa with its medical system is telling us early warning and doing everything right. And we respond nationally uh, immediately, even after more than, uh, you know, nearly two years of dealing with this. So we're not prepared to manage global challenges in the way that we need to. And so we think about that, like, what are we learning? So what can we do to help create a better regime around monitoring and verification? How do we support better global engagement? What can people do to make a difference? And we keep our eye on other advancing technologies. There are people who don't like the doomsday clock. One notable critic is cognitive psychologist Steven Pinker, who wrote in his book Enlightenment Now that the clock is a political stunt that isn't based on any objective measure of security, noting that the clock was closer to midnight in 2007 than it was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The bulletin's response was that the clock wasn't changed during the 10-day standoff because there wasn't enough information about the circumstances of the crisis at the time. And as Rachel Bronson points out, the clock isn't meant to follow the events of the news cycle. 
Another critique often raised is that the clock puts humanity in a constant state of high alert and that the prospect of our impending annihilation can induce a sort of policy paralysis. I put these reservations to Rachel Bronson. Yeah, well, I think of the doomsday clock as a barometer of what the situation currently is. And I think that we need to continue to think about ways to help move the clock back. And, you know, on that, there's there's a lot of different ways you can go, but it's my strong belief. And here I pick up on the words of Hank Green and then Catherine Hayhoe, who's a Uh, a terrific climate scientist and communicator that these conversations are really important because it can feel paralyzing. And, and Hank said at, at our announcement that no one can, I'm not going to get exactly right, but it's like no one can change the world, but no one doesn't change the world. Right. And so like you have to find your peace in it. And that what Catherine will talk about is everyone is influential somewhere in some group, right? Whether it's your mom's group and picking your kids up from the playground after school in your church or your synagogue or your mosque or at your um, your local com- your company where you work or your card group on the weekend, whatever it is, you have a sphere of influence. And so these kinds of conversations, where would you set the clock? What factors would go into doing it? Did we get it right? What can we do? What can you do on any of these issues? Can you heat your home differently? Can you use, you know, drink water, use less uh, waste in your water bottles, walk more? Can you, uh, you know, there's eat less meat. You know, there's, there's a number of things that it, and it doesn't move the needle for the, for, it won't necessarily your action alone move the hands of the doomsday clock. But that's how we have moved the hands of the doomsday clock before, when those actions have been amplified and joined and engaged. And that really is about us and our ability to have these conversations and know that they matter. So um, that's what I would say. I'd say that there, we just have to stay at it. And it's hard to have something be urgent for 75 years, but it's true. We've created these technologies. And so it's our responsibility to try to manage them. The, they, uh, more than one of your experts uh, was keen to point out that uh, despite the fact that it stayed the same for two years running, this isn't meant to reflect any kind of stable international situation. We're not, this is not something we can rest easy about. Yeah. Two years ago, we called it the new abnormal. And, uh, and it was an interesting conversation around it, right? Because we we're saying this is the new normal. This is what it feels like. And one of our experts said, like, I refuse to say this is normal. This is not normal. It is abnormal. We're living on uh, kind of, you know, hair trigger alerts. We're on, we're, we're on edge. This is, we, we as the Bulletin Atomic Scientists cannot normalize this. And so we've been referring to it as the new abnormal. This is what this feels like. And it feels like something's not going in the right direction. It feels worrisome. And so often, you know, we'll, we'll get, you, you know, the, if, if you kind of look into the Twitter sphere or, or, or anywhere else, you know, there's, there's a lot of conversation and, and a lot of net, you know, a lot of responses, uh, like you're just trying to scare us, you're kind of scaremongers and this is terrifying. And, you know, what are you doing? And I think that's important because this is a very worrisome situation we find ourselves in. 
Um, but at the same time, and especially uh, over the last few years, as we did move it closer, we also did get a lot of feedback in the sense of like, thank you, right? This doesn't feel normal. This doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like we should all, you know, in the U.S. Con- context, go out and shop. It doesn't feel like we this does feel like something is wrong and not going in the right direction. And kind of thanks for calling it out that I'm not crazy. And, and so that's why you, you, you do get so many school kids using the clock as the way to talk about these issues or people talking about it. Like it does feel uncomfortable. It does feel edgy and dangerous. And that is really what a hundred seconds to midnight feels like. So we're not constructing it. We're reflecting back on, on kind of, where we are now and and the need for urgent action. Perhaps the edging of the clock towards midnight over the last 10 years does induce a feeling of fear and despair, but that doesn't make it wrong or counterproductive. Maybe you disagree and think the clock's current time is an overreaction, but at the very least, a warning from a group of esteemed scientists and experts saying we have never been closer to the end than we are now should make people take notice. And the image of a clock designed 75 years ago still serves as a useful popular reference that can not only spark debate about the existential threats we face, but also serve as a reminder that it's not too late. We've managed to turn back time on this clock before. We can do it again. Thanks for listening to Insult My Intelligence, hosted by me, Tim Dowling, and produced by Johnny Dowling. Thanks to my guest, Rachel Bronson, and please follow us on Twitter at InsultMyIntel. If you have an idea or a topic for an episode, email us at insultmyintelshow at gmail.com or visit our website, insultmyintelshow.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening from.